Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode number 20 with your hosts, Mark Savatsky from Choose Boston. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. And we're here today with our guest. I'm Ted Tai here for episode number 20. Very excited. Awesome. Nice. Ted is one of the principals and founders of National Development. And uh, really excited to have you here with us today. So thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. It's a big episode. Yeah. No, we made it. We I didn't made think it. we'd get to 10. <laughs> <laughs> now we got to get to 30. It's a lot of candles on that cake. It's yeah. right. <laughs> it is. It is. How do you think the Celtics are going to do this year? Oh, we get right to the important real yeah. estate questions <laughs> first. We start at the top, yeah. We start at the top. Okay. I don't think it's going to be a great year. I no. think uh, we got to get somebody to protect the rim. We'll see what happens, but um, not disappointed to see Kyrie out of town. Yeah, you're not giving up your season tickets? Uh, no, I'm on year like 36 or something. I wow. kind of lost track, but I'm one of the... I think longest tenured season ticket holders at this point. Have they, have they ever done that like super season ticket holder thing for you? You know, I've been embarrassed to kind of be up on the scoreboard <laughs> like with a with a waving hand, you know. So I <laughs> kind of keep it low key. But uh, yeah. the Celtics actually do take very good care of their season ticket holders. They, they do. Yeah, they have they have figured that out. Um, perhaps even more than some of the other sports teams. Nice. Nice. I prefer the kiss cam personally, but um, you know, <laughs> don't 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 look at me when you say yeah. that. <laughs> um, so let's start at the top here. You, you've been in real estate now. National development is twenty five plus years uh, in existence, and yeah, uh, uh, close to thirty five years. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Can you tell us about the beginning, starting? Uh, you know how you got into the industry and what drew you into real estate. Uh, so I got personally got into the industry after um, I, I graduated from Tufts. I went to Harvard Business School. I worked for Harvard for a couple of years and then jumped into the business with one of my college friends, Tom Alperin. And uh, ultimately, three of us uh, founded National Development, Tom, um, my friend from Tufts, and uh, Jack O'Neill and myself. And uh, we went from you know, a fairly small organization with a handful of people around the table to uh, today where we are something like 275 people. So we're a pretty big organization. What were the first few deals like? I don't imagine you were flipping three families or were you? No, we never uh, flipped three families, but, um, you know, our deals were small. And in the beginning we were, we started the business. We're all in our late, we're in our late twenties. So, you know, having sort of credibility, um, you know, was, was difficult. We had to dress up like big boys and, um, but we started off with some decent size industrial deals and we were more of a suburban industrial and office developer in the, in the early days. And that expanded to, uh, a more well-rounded and, uh, and diverse group of projects over the years. Yeah, I actually noticed. I noticed on your website your portfolio is kind of it's very diverse. So is I didn't know if that was is that intentional or did you happen to stumble upon some of the projects that you did by chance or or is that is it planned? It's uh, it actually is intentional, and I've I've told the story a few times. Um, you know, there's sort of two thing. One thing I learned in business school, which is the is this Michael Porter, who's a a well-known professor said, you know, you have to find your distinctive competence, that one thing you're really good at, and focus on that. And then uh, early on in our national development career, Tom 
and I went to see Steve Karp, who was a little bit of a mentor to us and somebody that we really respected in the industry. And we sat down with Steve and Steve said, you know, I want to tell you my secret was I found something I was really good at and that was developing shopping malls. And that's what you guys should do. Focus on something you're really good at. So we turned around and we completely rejected both pieces of advice. (laughs) Um, And we said, you know, if you're, if you understand real estate fundamentally, you can be good in different sectors of real estate. Sometimes it takes partnering with the right people to be able to pull that off in the right way. But guys know real estate really is cyclical. And um, while we're in a pretty good cycle right now over the years, you know, retail might be up and residential might be down or senior housing may be working and office may not. So by focusing on different areas and developing some internal expertise in different areas, it's, it's actually helped us ride out cycles. And what's really come together over the last, particularly probably the last 10 years, maybe a few more, is that mixed use just has a different meaning than it did when I got into the business. Actually, lenders were afraid of mixed use projects. They didn't know what to do with them. And today, everybody's doing mixed use. And so the fact that we have done hotels and done residential and done retail and done condos and can mix those uses in projects because we've done them all has been a real advantage to us. And that's when you, you know, see certain of our projects like a station landing in Medford or an ink block in Boston, you see how those uses are starting to come together and be more the norm. One of the projects that we drive by, I think Dan and I, at least on a daily basis, is the Ink Block over in South End. the South End and Southie border. Our office is in Southie, so we're always going on Albany Street there. It came out beautifully and I believe it was built by your construction company, Crenshaw Construction. So you have multiple different arms and I also noticed you have property management. So how did these companies evolve and become kind of a portfolio over time? That's another one of our basic you know, core strategies that we founded the company on was that uh, we wanted to be a fully integrated real estate company. And I always say our our name is National Development. It's the biggest misnomer. We're neither national nor just a development company. We're actually a fairly locally focused, but integrated platform real estate company. So we we essentially do four different things. Uh, Development is one of them. Property and asset management is a second one. Our construction uh, affiliate, Cranshaw Construction, is the third. And investment management is the the fourth through uh, Charles River uh, Realty Investors, which uh, our partner, Brian Kavugian, uh, heads up, uh, but is really our investment platform as well. And so all four of those really fit well together for us. And in any particular project, it's likely that all four aspects of the company are involved in, in one way or another. Is there a brokerage component embedded in one of those arms or is that intentionally omitted? There is not. Two things people often ask about is our our brokerage and design. And we've chosen to do neither. And, um, you know, the brokerage community in Boston is very well established and relationship oriented. And we would rather work with people who are engaged in that on a day-to-day basis than to try to do it ourselves. And the same thing really in the design end. Um, 
we much rather go out and, and, and use those services and do it with people who can do it better than we can. And, you know, going back to what I said before about partnership, we've based a lot of what we've done on partnering with people who can do things better than us in some cases. So while we have owned and developed a bunch of hotels, we partner with a hotel operator whose day-to-day expertise is operating hotels. We've done the same thing. We've done close to 40 senior housing projects, but we'll partner on every single one of them with a senior housing operator. So we understand how to put it together, but we also understand that somebody whose daily grind is managing senior housing is a better operator than, than, than we are. And there's other examples of that in retail or, or other areas. Did you guys ever do any trailer parks? No trailer parks. Self-storage? No. We haven't, although we, we really have we'd love to do some self-storage. But we've done a lot of different other things uh, that, that, that combine a bunch of those areas. So I know this is probably a tough question because when you're a developer, uh, you know, your projects are like your children. Right. Do you have a favorite? Do I have a favorite child? (laughs) Um, Development project. (laughs) You know, we've done so many of them over the years. I mean, that'd be Uh, an easy answer, right? Inkblock is is the answer. Um, Inkblock is still ongoing. Um, we're, We're about to start our seventh building, which we can talk about. but. To me, you know, that's kind of been my, my PhD thesis because it's such a visible project. It's received international recognition um, and it combines so many things that we've done. And I think it's been done so well. Like, you know, every, everybody once in their career should have an opportunity to develop a full city block um, <laughs> and really think about you know, a transformational development that completely has changed the community around and has, you know, been in the the core of the city that you you work in. That's been fun. I mean, we've done everything from build a baseball stadium in Worcester on the Holy Cross campus, super fun, to do some historic renovations, um, you know, doing a, the former Howard Clock Company in Waltham, just one of my, not a huge project, but one of my favorite little projects over the years as well. And I could probably keep going. And, you know, I really love to embrace every real estate project we've done, whether it's just like an industrial project or uh, taking a mobile station next door to our office and making it into a Starbucks. Every one of them is fun and interesting and uh, you love them, but you don't love them so much that you uh, let that interfere with uh, sure. making them successful projects. So the logical follow-up to that question then is, are there any projects that you really don't care to remember or ones that may have caused you to lose some sleep? None that, well, the ones I don't care to remember, I don't care to name either. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. But um, no, no, a lot of them cause you to lose sleep. The nature of our business and the nature of what we do as developers is so we're trying to create value, but we create value by often bringing on risk. So, you know, maybe less so in, in acquiring projects and then ultimately selling them, which is a lot of what we do through our fund. But we take a lot of permit risk and a lot of entitlement risk in all of our big projects. And um, 
yeah, you, you know, going to a town meeting and um, having to get a two-thirds vote from the townspeople, you know, on a night in the school gym in November. We do that stuff all the time. And you have millions of dollars riding on whether you're successful or not. I lose sleep over that. I still enjoy the the fight and the battle of it, but I do lose some sleep over that. How long was the planning process for, for Inkblock? So Inkblock is one that I did lose a few nights sleep over over, over, over the years. So we, we acquired that project in 2006 as a sale leaseback. And then we entered into what you might, guys might remember were some not so good years in the real estate business. And, you know, we had uh, uh, some, you know, some real trauma in 2008, 9, 10. Yeah, the construction cranes went into hibernation at that point. They did. Now, we were lucky enough, it was a sale leaseback with the Herald that carried us over a period of time. But we were looking at some really, you know, tough scenarios of what could we build there until we came to a vision. We brought in a, a good institutional partner to work with us. And, um, and we struck on that project in 2013. That's right when we started it. And that's just when we were coming out. So we had a kind of a ramp up and a permitting period and a design period. We came out of the ground on that project. There was no residential very little residential being built, no condominiums being built, no pipeline at all. And we started, but uh, I say, you know, we were looking for all sorts of things during that down period. We had, uh, we rented the building to uh, a movie producer. The movie, The Heat, was actually filmed in that building. So if you- In the old old Herald building? In the old Herald building. And that movie plays all the time. But when you look at some of the scenes, you'll see the view, which is the current ink block view, out of the building, and all of the sets were built inside. We had FBI police dogs doing training in there for uh, uh, three or four months. So there's a very fine line between being a genius and a fool. And um, fortunately, on that project, we came out on the on the on the right side, and it's been hugely successful. We're really excited about the next building that we're building there, which is the seventh and final building right now. So I think, you know, most people are familiar with what we've done to date, which is apartments, retail, anchored by the Whole Foods, some incredible restaurants and some fitness focus and two condominium buildings, CPN Siena and uh, the AC Hotel. But the seventh and final building is a co-living building. And it'll be the first large-scale co-living building in Boston. It's, um, it'll be... Um, Do you want to describe what co-living is just to any listeners who aren't familiar? Sure. It is really a new concept and it's new around the country. And we're, we're really you know, thrilled to be debuting it in Boston. So the building itself is a 14-story building that'll be in the corner of um, Herald and Albany Streets. And co-living is a concept that um, is occasionally referred to by words that we don't like, like dorms, because it's not. We say that's the four-letter word. But it's a social environment where people's apartment or living space is really their bedroom. And 
extensive uh, amenity space within the building. So we rent actually by the by the room, not by the apartment. The apartment, your room, or it might be a studio apartment. It might be a one bedroom, or it might be a two, three, or four bedroom where you're sharing your convertible living space with others. So they come fully furnished and the kitchen areas are relatively small and there's a minimal amount of of living space within your unit. Your bedroom is convertible. Your bed will fold up into the wall. Your desk may fold out into a big table, but it's very compact. The amenity space though is fantastic. So You'll walk into this building and there'll be a full floor of amenities in front of you. There'll be some co-working space. There'll be a coffee bar. There'll be stadium seating with a TV. There'll be rooms where you can go in and, uh, and, and work or study. Fantastic shared kitchen spaces, huge fitness, and other great stuff, um, including like gaming rooms and just fun places. The idea is that you come in and you rent a fully furnished unit, and you're given this set of services. So there'll be a community manager. There'll be lots of social activities that take place within the building. You'll get linens changed. You'll get your apartment cleaned. Uh, you get Wi-Fi and cable. Apartment cleaned? Dishes too? I might, I might get a room. <laughs> Is there an operator? How do, you, how do you manage this? As we do with the rest of Inkblock, we will be, we will be managing it, but we've affiliated with a, a, a group uh, out in New York called Ollie that have uh, been the um, innovators in co-living around the country. And so they will be working with us. So actually the, the building will be called Seven Inc. powered by Ollie. How far through the permitting and approval process are you? And how has the neighbors received the proposal? So we're 100% through and we actually are starting construction uh, in August. And uh, it'll be about a 22-month construction period. So I think people have been really excited because this is the, this is the last piece of the block. And it almost is like a gap today where we've cr- tried to create this really walkable, livable place where, you know, there's cafe seating and wide sidewalks. But there's this one corner, which is in the back of the Whole Foods that that just feels very incomplete. So that will complete the whole six acre block. And it connects very well across the street to underground at Ink Block, which is our urban park, which is another six plus acres that we've, uh, that we've worked on there. And uh, it's right across the street. And so that's kind of the front yard. So it's really exciting. And how does the city classify that building? So do they, do they classify it as a rooming house? Do they classify it as apartments? Because obviously when you start having a certain number of people living in the same... You know, great question. And the city, the city has worked with us and said, this is kind of a pilot. You know, Mayor Walsh is trying to create close to 70,000 new uh, housing units within the city to keep up with this great demand that we've had in Boston um, and this great amount of growth we've had. And the answer is you can't just create all the same kind of units. They have to be dorm rooms. They have to be multifamily apartments. They have to be condos. And this is just another type that we can create there. But it's caused the city to, you know, look at its uh, policies for unit sizes and how is affordability handled within this, which is a little bit different than in the usual 
inclusionary development plan. So it's, 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 um, I think we're going to be blazing a little bit of new ground. We've worked with the city closely to answer most of the questions and we'll answer others as they come up and, and we go forward. It's kind of cool though, kind of it's, blazing a new path. It is. And it's, it's, it, it's not the answer to all the problems, but it's a, it's a, it's a small piece of the answer. And um, you, you know, you think about the young workforce that's coming into Boston and these are generally good jobs and they're reasonably well-paid jobs. But if I'm coming in from California and I'm working at um, Amazon or Google or Reebok or one of the you know new companies that are coming in here, I can come in because I'm a millennial. I might not travel with a lot of possessions and come into a fully furnished apartment. And I'm in a social community where I can meet people and have activities and all sorts of things uh, that that kind of integrate me really quickly into the city. So that's that's the idea. You mentioned that you do take on projects where there's some entitlement and permitting risk. How has that? How have you seen that change over the years and, and the few decades that you've been doing this in Boston? Has it gotten better, worse? Just grown with the times? So we do. You know, we do take on a lot of risk, and it's it's. In Boston, it's also in the suburbs. And you know, Massachusetts is a really unusual place. It may be... We hear that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it may be one of the hardest places in the country to actually get entitlements. And, you know, unlike other areas where there's a county government that you deal with, in Massachusetts, it's 351 cities and towns. Each one of them has their own individual process. And Boston, of course, has its process as well. So some things haven't changed in 300 years. Um, Going to a town meeting, you know, on one hand, it's beautiful. On the other hand, it's maybe the most tortured form of government that you can ever imagine that, you know, that in fact, you're making decisions based upon uh, a two-thirds vote of uh, people who are showing up in a high school gym uh, or auditorium to decide the fate of a project that you've spent a lot of time on, and you can't possibly educate them in the 15 minutes that you usually get to uh, to stand up. I mean, I had I had one this fall where we went to a town meeting and 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 we actually lost which actually I've never done. But knowing the rules, we had someone introduce a motion to reconsider, which was then voted positively, and we came back the second night and won. So, you know, it's, uh, I, we, we'd sometimes I say we take more risk than if we went down to the <laughs> casino and put it all on, you know, number 12. But you do try to hedge some of that risk, uh, for example, yeah. with a lease back or well, you know, keeping no, no, some are, use of the existing property or parcels? You know, sometimes yes and sometimes no, because you're you know, you you hope that you're not buying something. Um your your say your purchase is sometimes contingent upon the approval, but you're putting out hundreds of thousands of dollars just to get to the stage of knowing whether you're going to get the approval or not. I think one, just to go back to your original question, I think one of the biggest ways that things have changed over time has been the internet and social media. 
And a lot, when, you know, when I was first getting into the business, a lot of what you did was very personal. You go to people's living rooms, you knock on people's doors, you have a, a forum uh, for discussion about the merits of a particular project that you're proposing. And while our philosophy is still to do that, to really engage people very personally, the fact that people and opponents can use social media as a weapon is something that's really changed. So, you know, I've been in projects, several projects recently where there's a Facebook page or there's a blog that a single opponent can set up. And of course, if it's on the internet, it must be true. Yeah, right? Of course. But it's often not. And so I found that it's as opposed to engaging in intelligent discussion in, with, with neighbors and those who might not initially be in favor of your project, oftentimes you're trying to play offense or defense because you've got somebody who has just gone off and you know, and, and, and is in the pot is a NIMBY or, or, or just, you know, doesn't like your project oftentimes for all the wrong reasons. And that's really, really hard because it, 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 it sets up a whole community against, against something, you know, again, for the wrong reasons. There's been some good attempts. Uh, Co-urbanize is a website that um, mm. is founded locally you know, tries to create a good forum and tries to not really control the information, but give people a chance to comment and receive a responsible response to it. Um, so there's there, there are some ways to do it, but the biggest single thing in the whole entitlement business, I think, has been the you know, the impact of social media. That's that's one of the yeah. biggest changes. No, Co-urbanize is not... Uh owned by the city of Boston no, or any entity. No, 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 it's no. a third party, right? Yeah. Do you think that the BPDA and other entities, local municipalities should own something like that and control the discussion that way? Do you think that might be productive? It's hard. I think some, you know, some communities have encouraged platforms like that. Uh, oftentimes in the suburbs, well, even at the BPDA, it re- information resides on their website but the communication doesn't happen through the website. That's the difference. I'm often frustrated by a lack of an official or a referee, someone to host the forum who can set the ground rules and then keep everything in check. It's difficult as the proponent when they sort of just open the cage and say, have at it. And, uh, you know, it can, it can become unruly. Even- Questions can be repeated multiple times. It, it's, there's a process, and if there is a process and I understand it, I can compete, but... I think sometimes it's, it's a free for all. Sometimes it's hard though, because if you know the city typically will, if you're doing something in the city of Boston, they'll appoint a neighborhood liaison or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I mean, a lot of times you're going to these meetings and there could be hundreds of people there, and you have one city official <laughs> trying to corral everybody, and sometimes it gets yeah, out of control. You know, it's it's often it's often difficult. Um, the BPDA generally does a pretty good job of it. Um, as you go through the process. Yeah, certainly in larger projects, you have that benefit. It's almost the, the smaller scale stuff where there's almost less process. It's more arbitrary based on an abutters meeting and a community group. Yeah, if, you're, if you fall under that smaller, large project review. Smaller right. than small projects. Yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're pretty much yeah. 
It's you guys tough. have choked on the smaller <laughs> yeah, ones. <right? laughs> I've, uh, you know, I've, I've had pretty good experience on the larger ones. And look, you know, what we do is we engage with neighbors and communities and, and that's part of the process. So you've got to engage with public officials. You've got to engage with neighbors. You've got to engage with wider community groups. And, you know, I found in Boston in general, in recent years, I think under, under Mayor Walsh, there's been a good sense of balance between it's just not all about one interest. It's not all about the business interests. It's not all about the neighbors. It's kind of about the project and a, and a real interest in seeing responsible projects move ahead. So I think that's that's been pretty good. Are you allowed to name any municipalities that are uh, that you feel that are very difficult to work in? No, um, <laughs> definitely not. Dealing in a lot of the suburban municipalities, and I think I've dealt, I think I've felt 40 different communities over the years. So, you know, you're dealing with oftentimes, sometimes communities don't even have a planning director, but you're dealing with a planning board. And sometimes the planning boards are, they're, they're individuals have chosen to run because there's not that much interest in some communities and people running and they don't have any expertise in what you're talking about. And I, I actually feel bad in those cases for those communities. And we often say, please hire a peer consultant, hire somebody with some expertise to review what we're telling you, as opposed to just saying all traffic consultants are liars or, <laughs> um, you know, whatever. But I think the more professional guidance that communities have in the process, the better. Do you find it more difficult as we go along in the business cycle to get approvals? Do you find that there's a little bit of fatigue? Whereas at the early stages and we're coming out of a recession, people may have welcomed uh, certain changes on the block. And then now maybe there's just, they don't want any more tower cranes. Not, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Will. I mean, I think, you know, in the, it, it's just, I don't, I, there's never been as an exciting a time as I think there is right now. And that goes both in the city and in the suburbs. And um, so people are sort of getting it. Like, you know, when I look back a few years, like everybody, oh, density was this terrible thing. And now people are being more progressive about it. Like even the suburban communities in a lot of cases are understanding that the future is really focused on community centers and town centers and people want walkability and they want a sense of amenities that they can get to. And, and I, I see that in the city and I see that in the suburbs as well, which is kind of nice and exciting. That, that doesn't, now, that doesn't mean that every community wants development of all types and nor should they. But, you know, we're seeing like in Burlington is another example. So we have um, a project, the District Burlington, that we're really proud of that was a essentially a transformation of an aging office park into something that responds to this sense of community. So we built retail and we built a street and we put a hotel in and we made it walkable and bikeable and we put in amenities so that we can have all sorts of activities there. And all of a sudden it's transformed from a aging office park to a a park that has uh, that's very livable, that has restaurants and places to go and places to walk. And we just had like a summer camp activity there with 
2,500 tenants who showed up to it. So, but that's just another example of, of, of you know, communities are, are interested in those kinds of things because it's tax dollars and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's generally good for the community. So you, so kind of segueing into the cycle and, you know, you mentioned earlier that we've had a good run and I'm sure you've been asked this question dozens of times. Where, where do you think we are in the cycle at this point? Gee, why did I think you were asking <laughs> that question? I've been asked that question so many times. It's like sure. so many other developers have. And if you asked it five years ago, he said, no, you know, we're kind of in the seventh inning and, you know, we got a few innings left and it's going great. I don't have a clue, but I feel like Boston and the Boston market is really uniquely positioned against a lot of the country right now. We are still growing. The jobs are still coming into the city. Housing production still hasn't kept up with the growth of the city. And then we're seeing lately, you know, the, the, the buzzword lately is life science. You know, how much, where can we find life science space? And we're in the middle of that as well. We acquired the, the, uh, the GE headquarters site in Boston, which we're converting to, to life science. And we're actively looking at three other locations. So I think there's enough demand to say that we are not going to fall off a cliff like we've done in a couple of times in the past and that this, uh, the growth can be sustained for a period of time. Now, it doesn't mean it isn't changing. You know, we see all these rapid changes in retail that are happening, but we see, a, you know, we're, we're very involved in housing and in senior housing. And you look at the demographics and senior housing is going to continue to be in demand and grow because we have this huge bubble of baby boomers who are, uh, who are aging in place. So, you know, we just, we're opening in October and we've done assisted living and we've done memory care assisted living and we've done independent living, which we continue to do, but we're now moving on into active adult. So what are What's some housing choices for our aging population? So there's still enough, you know, I think growth demand in the market in different sectors to keep it going for a while. And going back to what you said, having that diverse portfolio helps to kind of hedge against if one particular sector kind of has a has kind of a blip, then you have the other ones as well. It helps. And I'll tell you also, it's a heck of a lot of fun <laughs> um, to be able to, you know, go from a meeting on doing a, you know, a luxury res- residential tower to trying to figure out how to do a, uh, a uh, memory care for aging adults or a life science facility or um, redo a... Um, an industrial building into a very cool retail setting as, as we're working on now in South Boston. So it makes, makes what I do really fun. I guess as a follow-up to Dan's question, you know, it's not a matter of if it's when, so when Boston or the nation may experience some kind of downturn, you know, how is, how is the company preparing for handling that? Is it flexible in terms of workforce? You know, people understand that, construction jobs might fall off a little bit, but maybe you pick up in more of the property management side, that sort of thing. I, I think there's, there's multiple layers of answers to that. Uh, some of it is how you think about your projects, how you finance your projects. You know, sometimes you, 
take a little less risk to for a little more stability in the way you plan your projects. We've got an incredibly talented workforce here in all of the different areas that we described. And, you know, our Cranshaw Construction, which is our construction affiliate, does, I think this year, less than half of its uh, volume will be related to our company. They work for kind of the who's who of major development firms in the Boston market. And that's by design. So we say we, we generally operate fairly lean and mean. We're entrepreneurial on whatever we do, whether it's property management, whether it's construction. Our fund, uh, Charles River uh, Realty Investors, has uh, has really kind of led the pack in its uh, in, in its returns, and it's uh, I think conservative yet uh, really creative investment. So you look at a lot of ways to try to sustain yourself through through any market and any market cycle. Sure. And we've done that a few times. Yeah, obviously. And and you've made it through and you've kept growing and congratulations. Thank you. So we have a pretty diverse listener base, I'd say. You know, investors, wannabe developers, developers. No, no offense to actual developers. Realtors. Uh, yeah, realtors, brokers. It, somebody listening today, if they want to jump in, but they don't know where, working for one of your companies could be a good opportunity, potentially. Not that I'm giving you a plug to have everybody join, but that's kind of a good way to get some exposure, is it not? I get a lot. One of the things I still do a lot of is I talk to a lot of people who want to get into the business. And uh, I've been very involved with uh, with Tufts University over the years, and I still am. And, um, and I meet with a lot of people from Tufts and a lot of athletes from Tufts who want to get into business. But I also meet with people who are kind of early career as well. In real estate, it's both a hard business to get into and an easy business to get into. It's hard because if you walk in the door and say, I want to be a developer, we don't have a nameplate that says, you know, developers enter here. Yeah. Um, no, like certification, you're official but, developer. But there are, there are a ton of ways that you can get into the business, um, whether it be through construction or through property management, through doing something entrepreneurial on your own through being an engineer or an architect through some of the educational programs in Boston, MIT being a great one. Boston college has a great program. Brandeis has a good program that we've hired from. And I I speak at a lot of these. I was at Northeastern this year there. They have a terrific program uh, on the undergraduate level, Harvard with GSD. Um, and a lot of times, you know, I'll say to people, the best way to get into the business is find some peripheral way that you've worked in something related to real estate. And if you really want to transition, take that year or do it at night, come in with a, with a background, know the analytics of how to, you know, really work a real estate uh, deal and, uh, and then try to kind of stick your foot in the door and, and, and get that first job. Yeah, I think we're about to ready for a quick game of underrated, overrated, or appropriately rated. I, have, I do have one last question. All right. Oh. I have to ask. <laughs> what did, what'd you end up doing with all the cows from Hilltop? So I'm a, I'm a crazy... some background there. I, I, yeah. I'm a crazy collector of things. I, 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 love, I love sort of iconic things and, 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 and signs. So one of them was the Hilltop cows that 
for many years were in front of the Hilltop Steakhouse in Saugus. And when I heard they were closing, I called a friend of mine who knew somebody who was involved in the deal and hooked me up with the right person. I called him and he said, yeah, oh yeah, you can buy, you can buy the cows. You just got to get them by tomorrow. <laughs> and so we were How able- How many were there? I think there were maybe like seven or eight, but we bought four of them. And I had some of my construction guys with a pickup truck go get them with a check. <laughs> and they, uh, they currently reside in our Market Street Linfield project. And there's an interpretive plaque that tells you about the Hilltop Steakhouse, which of course no longer exists and is now a Avalon-based uh, project. So they're grazing out in Linfield. <laughs> Nice. Um, but, you know, I've done a few other things over the years. The the old Boston Herald sign is up in the uh, Whole Foods on the wall at Ink Block. Um, scoreboard from the garden. The scoreboard from the garden is currently in storage in pieces. It's the old Boston Garden scoreboard. But Are we allowed to ask where that's going to end up? We have an idea, and I actually have a, a meeting next week. I was hoping real estate addicts would be the place where <laughs> this gets released. Um, so I, you know, Breaking I'm, news. Yeah. Not, not quite yet, but uh, it is going to live. And you know, being a crazy sports fan, I, I want it to come back and just be something that people can look at and mark one of our projects. And the other one I've had, amongst others, that I've had really a lot of fun with in the last couple of years is the the old circle sign from the Cleveland Circle Cinema that uh, is uh, you know, seven foot high letters that we restored after we tore down the cinema and uh, put them back on top of our new building in Cleveland Circle. And uh, that kind of marks all of Cleveland Circle now. That's cool. Yeah, so awesome. that was fun. All right. All, all right. right. So do we need to go over the ground rules or is it pretty self-explanatory? Uh, well, you, you know, are there prizes? Prize, definitely big prizes, the garden right. scoreboard. And... <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah. If you will right. take it, if I... <laughs> uh, my wife already yells at me for the clutter in my apartment, so, or condo. <laughs> that scoreboard's 15 feet high, yeah. so uh, I'm not sure it's going to work in the condo. I would have thought, no, thought it would be I bigger. I the ceiling height. Oh, you know, it's 15 feet high and it's got four separate faces to it. <laughs> so it's pretty big. So it's pretty big. Placemaking. Placemaking, I would say overused word. Okay. It's a really key portion of what we do. And I'm really getting tired of everybody placemaking. So it can be done well. And then there's a real art to it, but um, I hear too much about it right now. I like what Ted did there. He kind of made, that was option D. Yeah. Overused. He created it as well. Yeah, overused. You can do that one, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love it. I don't get paid for this. <laughs> <laughs> How about sustainability, building sustainable, lead buildings, that sort of thing? So completely underrated. It is, it is so important to what we do. You know, I don't think lead as a, as a brand is that important, but um, thinking about sustainability and thinking about particularly resiliency right now and climate change and how it affects buildings, really critically important and uh, will continue to... Uh, to become more important as we uh, as we move ahead, not inexpensive uh, either, but uh, but really important to what we do. Okay, how about rent control? Ooh, now we're taking off the gloves. Dun dun dun. Um, I'm going to take option, you know, E on that one. I think rent control is an idea that has passed. 
it went away for really good reasons. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have an affordability problem, but I do not think rent control is the answer to it. And, you know, we've we've been there, done that, and there are a lot of other ways to attack affordability. I don't think rent control is one of them. Buying entitled property. So permits in place, they pass you the drawings and, uh, you know, ostensibly at a lower margin. I don't think I've ever done it. Never um, yeah. I just sold a permitted deal. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Overrated and something, you know, just, I don't like paying retail either. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it probably has its place. I hope you, I hope you did well on that deal. <laughs> <laughs> I was the one selling the permits. So yeah, yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. the corollary right there. So right. have you, have you ever sold any entitled projects? Don't think we ever have. I mean, we certainly have sold projects, but typically, uh, just like you did, Mark, on, I'm sure on that deal is uh, you took the risk on the permits and um, you created value and you sold it and you realized it. Um, we would typically do that, but we would also incorporate our construction uh, component and development component to deliver a finished product. So, Cool. Yeah. Hey, sorry, Mark, do you, you don't mind if I ask yeah. that, that project that you sold, um, did you close on it or was it contingent and then you sold the purchase contract? I closed on asking. it. No, it was a covered land play. Okay. Uh, the guy I was buying it from owned a number of taxi cab medallions and it was underwater. And I had offered them a zoning contingent price and they called me back and they said, if we knock this much off, uh, would you take it, you know, without the contingency? And I looked at it and I said, well, it's a single family. I could rent that and cover the mortgage and it'd be decent. So it, it worked out. I ended up permitting it for three units with two parking spots. And uh, nice. yeah, that's good. Last one, Dan. How about sports team ownership? Rated, underrated. You know, maybe, maybe a little overrated. I've done it twice. Um, I, I, I started a um, minor league baseball team in Worcester, the Worcester Tornadoes. And we owned that for five years and I, we played 92 games a season and I was at, uh, pretty close to half of them. And, uh, it was a great experience that did not make any money. (laughs) And unfortunately we sold it and the group we sold it to tanked it fairly soon thereafter. Uh, I wouldn't trade the experience, but it was a really difficult experience. The second one I started was the uh, main red clause with a group um, that um, former treasurer of the Boston Celtics and a former assistant coach of the Boston Celtics and, uh, and then became a, a larger group from Portland, Maine. We did that 11 years ago and you may have just read that um, we're selling, yeah, the Celtics um, are buying it, right? we're selling it to the Celtics. That's cool. Wow. That was a, and that was a wonderful experience. Really, a wonderful experience where we had a good local group from Portland and we achieved the right ending. So, well, they really better give you a good upgrade. You should get your own suite at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that awesome. was a, that was a, that was a fun experience, and so I've enjoyed that. I don't know whether I'll have another professional sports uh, venture coming down the line. What what got you into doing that? Just love of just the wanted game. to do it. Huge sports fan. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't even know I, how you go about starting something like that. You would just talk to a town. Hey, we want to bring a baseball team here um, or a basketball team. It was kind of like that. It was a oh, group wow. of us, group of us who were sports fans and said, uh, let's put it together. And we did this. We started it in November of 2004 and we had no place to play. 
We knew we wanted to do Worcester. We bought the franchise. We got Rich Gedman, former Red Sox catcher, as our manager. And we played our first game in May of 2005. So that was less than six months later. And we uh, we built, uh, about, I think it was, we put about three or four million dollars into the uh, into creating this ballpark at Fit and Field at Holy Cross that we built in about ten weeks, and we were literally the day opening night. We were we had uh, we had cranes putting up pulling up the foul poles, <laughs> <laughs> and I could tell a million stories. So it was like an unbelievable, uh, interesting experience. The people we met and the things we did, which fortunately didn't make any money on it. Otherwise, good memories. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise pretty good. Experience. good. That's awesome. Do you still have a jersey or anything? I do. Okay. I have a lot. Of, I have some jerseys and some bats. And you got uh, the billboard. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. this has been awesome. Thanks yeah. for joining us for episode twenty. This is fun. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, yeah thank you very much for taking the time. And thanks everyone for listening. And uh, if folks want to follow National Development or uh, your new projects, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, let's see. You can follow me on Twitter at, uh, at it's at tyguy44, and our website is uh, natdev.com, and that's uh, a way to find out a little more information about us if people are interested. Awesome. Thank you again. Thanks, Ted. All right. Great. All right. Cheers. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you.